Um, but I grew up, like many of you, in a religious context that gave me exposure uh, to a lot of different expressions of evangelical faith. Uh, part of it was the church I grew up in was non-denominational. So it meant that during my time, uh, I got a chance to see a lot of the ways people uh, talk about their faith. It was very diverse, I might say. Uh, I interacted with high church liturgists and also low church Pentecostals. Some people were very stoic and reserved in their worship. Other people were um, very flamboyant and excited. But it also means that I encountered a lot of people who had very different versions in their mind of what it looked like for a, a Christian to be a Christian in the world. There were some people that emphasized to me that, that it meant to have a lot of ecstatic experiences drawn by the Holy Spirit. Uh, there were others that tried to commend to me a life of, of personal faith and discipline. I actually think it's kind of hard to express to this generation just how strong the push was from evangelicals in the 60s and the, 80, in the 70s and the 80s uh, to, to understand the importance of evangelism. Uh, in other words, there was no higher form of the Christian life than to share your faith with, with faith with others. I mean, if heaven is what it is, and isn't that really the only thing that really matters to us when all that's at stake? And now look, I realize it's very hard to even broach this topic without sounding like I'm diminishing evangelism. I'm certainly not saying that at all. But I realize that the sum effect of this way of thinking had led me over time to make a separation in my mind between two different worlds. On one side of my life were the spiritual things. That was things like church, uh, prayer times, Bible study. But on the other hand, there were the secular things of life. Those were things like my job, uh, uh, the, the, the girl I may or, might have, may, may or may not have been dating, uh, my political views, views or whatever. There was a writer by the name of Art Lindsay who I think summed up the epiphany that I had about this way of looking at the world very nicely when he said there's many in the church who have focused on personal salvation and that is absolutely important. But they've neglected our purpose in creation and our destiny in a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, they've largely failed to see that Christ's redemption not only applies to one's personal life, but also to our corporate life in the church, indeed, to the whole cosmos. Redemption, as Acts 3.21 says, leads to the restoration of all things. In other words, it is a false, less-than-Christian view of the world that assumes that there are spiritual things in life and there are secular things in life. Rather, a Christian is called to worship God in every area of life. So therefore, what people have wrestled with from the very beginning of time is what does that look like as we move into the world? Well, I was able to dig up an, an, an incredibly old ancient document known as the Letter to Diognetus. When I say old, this thing dates to like 130 A.D. But in this little excerpt I want to read for you, he explains how it was in the very earliest of ages of Christianity. Christians were in the world but not of it. Listen to what he says. He says, For Christians these days cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by their country or their language or their customs. They don't live in cities separated from, out from their own. They don't use a peculiar form of speech. They don't follow some eccentric manner of life. Yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast... 
they follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and matters of day of living, matters of daily living. But at the same time, listen to this, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their commonwealth. What does he mean? He said if you looked inside their communities and the way they functioned with each other, you would see something absolutely distinctive about their Christianity. He goes on to talk about these distinctions. He says they live in countries, but they live as aliens. They have a share in everything as its citizens, but they endure everything as if they're foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is as a foreign country. They marry like everybody else and they beget children, but they don't cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but never their marriage bed. It's true that they are in the flesh, but they don't live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. And then he finishes with this. He says, what the soul is to a body is what Christians are to the world. Isn't that wonderful? Now, my premise is simply this. The earliest of Christians got that the instinct to engage in the world around them was what God wanted them to do. It was not to retreat into religious enclaves and protect themselves from the world. And they got that instinct from places like the Lord's Prayer. Last week we saw in the first half of the Lord's Prayer how all of our prayer is supposed to be a God-centering activity, that we surrender all of our lives to the Godness of everything. But once we've oriented ourselves to his majesty, the prayer then says, now you're ready to talk in the proper frame of mind about your daily struggles. And he mentions three that we have, three fundamental needs, things like our material needs, things like our need to get along with each other well, and then finally, things that pertain to our life's mission. In other words, a Christian doesn't sort of get distracted with these spiritual things and sort of discard the mundane they actually start to look and see a truly Christian worldview by focusing on the things that Jesus tells us to focus on. Okay, so this morning I want to look at three points, right? Number one, there's a prayer for provision. Number two, there's a prayer for peace. And then finally, there's a prayer for perseverance. Let's look at that first one, a prayer for provision. Look, you see this very clearly by the first request that a person is to make on their own behalf. In verse 11, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, look, before I dive into that, please remember what we talked about last week. Because there's a clear break between the first three petitions we looked at last week and the second three petitions this week. The first are Godward, the second are manward. There's a whole sermon to be preached on that one where once we're made right with God, that's the only way in which we have the perspective to live in unique lives and transformed lives. But I digress. The question is, what does Jesus mean when he says, give us this day our daily bread? Well, I think Jesus is both looking backwards at something, but also looking forward to something. First of all, he's looking backwards. I think Jesus is clearly recalling the Old Testament ancient Jewish experience of the manna that fell from heaven. Do you remember this? This is one of the ways in which God fed his people as they left Egypt and journeyed to the promised land. What was very interesting about that, though, if you go back and look at the laws that God put around the manna, is he would only let those people gather enough for one day. It was very specific. Don't gather. If you gather for two days, that second day's pot is going to spoil. 
So Jesus says, he looks back and says, give us our daily bread. But why was it that those people were not told to sort of get ahead of the game? <laughs> why were they only to gather a daily bread? I think the reason why, that happen, why, that, why Jesus did that is because he wants us to know that it's only as I put my needs in the context of the hand of the one who supplies all my needs that I ever know how to live with my needs. I think we get very confused about prayer because we pray to God and we're almost always asking for things like relief from whatever. We're asking for guidance. We're looking for insight into an issue. But if there's not a realization that what I really need, the need that is beyond every pressing present need, is for God himself, then invariably those things are going to get elevated to the point of idolatry. In other words, he is the only thing that I need. He's the only one that I can trust when I feel like not doing his will would finally make me ultimately pleasing. We don't go to God and say, Lord, please, just give me these things back. <laughs> you know, make me smarter. If only I was prettier. If only I was wealthier, whatever. whatever. Whatever we ask, we say, God, but regardless of those things, let me have you. It's a daily bread because you're the one that I need. And I need to remind myself that every day is your gift to me. So there's a sense in which I think Jesus is looking back to the Old Testament. But I think he's also looking forward to something he would say just a couple of months later which is by looking at his disciples and saying, as they gathered around in that upper room on the Last Supper, that he gives them a meal that he wants them to commemorate on a regular basis. And what Jesus does in that moment is he begins to equate the bread that we eat with his body. So much so that in Matthew 26 he says, this is my body which is for you. Every time we come in and take the Lord's Supper, we affirm the fact that the only real bread I need comes from his hand. Now, what's the point? Well, the point is it's absolutely appropriate. You have permission in this fourth petition to bring to God everything that we wrestle with. There's nothing too mundane. He's not bothered by that. But we always have to remember that all of the needs that I feel, whether it's for food in my stomach or a roof over my head or a longing to be deeply connected to those around me that I struggle to be so with, God is the ultimate need behind all of those needs. You know, the way we fall off, we oftentimes, we, we either over-ask or under-ask in prayer, don't we? You know, we under-ask by that assumption that thinks to ourselves, you know, there's no way that I'm bothering God with that. And you suddenly get this mentality in mind that God is somehow very withholding. He's got this idea that he's waiting for me to kind of jump through some more religious hoops before I'm able to sort of be, begin with him. James 4, 2 says, you don't have because you don't ask. Why do you think he's withholding in that way? But then, of course, we over-ask in prayer as well, which is why I think Jesus says we need to make sure we're praying for daily bread. One commentator put it this way. He said, a prayer that expresses dependence on God for daily bread is basically a prayer that says this person is willing to live a simple life, to live simply, satisfied with just the basics. Now, the question is, how do we balance that? And we have a wonderful passage in the Proverbs that I think lays this out so beautifully when the Proverbs writer says, look, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Don't give me poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me unless, or else I'll be full and I'll deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or on the other hand, I'll be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. <laughs> that's a prayer of somebody who knows themselves. 
You see what he's saying? Lord, if all of a sudden you give me everything that I want, I'm going to be fat, dumb, and happy. And I won't look at it, and I'll forget you because there'll be nothing to show me my need. But on the other hand, if you all of a sudden deny me of the things that I need, I will become a thief like that. <laughs> That's a person who knows their soul. They understand who they are. And the Proverbs writer guides us right into it. So that's our prayer for provision, first of all. Secondly, though, Jesus tells us that we can pray for peace with one another. In other words, a prayer for peace. In other words, Jesus knows that it really doesn't matter. You can have all of the material blessing that you could possibly long for. But if in the midst of that, my closest relationships are crumbling around me, what does it honestly really matter? Frankly, what happens when relationships begin to crumble is we turn into people who are isolated. There's a profound loneliness that comes when all of a sudden being sinned against and sinning ourselves starts to root itself in our relationship. And so Jesus is saying what you need is you need to have a wellspring inside of you from which you can draw forgiveness. And if you don't, isolation is your destiny. That's where you're headed. Now look, Jesus, though, I think gives us a clear way of helping us dig that well of forgiveness because of what he says there in verse 14. In other words, he expands on this fifth petition by saying, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now Jesus is doing something very subtle there because he is connecting our ability to get along with each other with the richness of how we perceive ourselves to be in relationship with him. That's the key. They're always connected. And Jesus illustrates this wonderfully in just a few chapters away from where we are now in Matthew chapter 18 with the story of the ungrateful servant. You remember the story? The story goes that there's a king who has a servant of his that owes him something like billions of dollars, which, by the way, was an unimaginable sum during Jesus' day. In other words, he's overwhelmed with the debt that he's incurred. And so what happens is, is he comes in and the, the, the slave starts to beg for forgiveness. And he says, I'm going to repay it all to you, which is a joke. On a slave's wages, he can never repay that amount of debt. But incredibly, at the sort of slave's request, the king grants it and forgives him the debt. Incurs it himself. But directly after that act of graciousness, that servant goes out and finds one of his servants who owes him like a couple of months' wages or so, and he demands repayment. The Bible even says he chokes him while he does. Well, that servant then repeats back to, to his uh, master exactly what the master had just said to the king. Just give me some time and I'll repay it. But the master says no. And he has that guy thrown in jail. Well, of course, the king finds out about this. And he calls the back guy back in and asks for an explanation. And he doesn't have one, of course. But what Jesus is outlining for us is this, this calculus of forgiveness. There, there, there's, a, there's almost a, a mathematical equation that we have to embrace of understanding that the degree to which I have apprehended God's forgiveness will always lead and guide and produce in me in direct proportion the amount of forgiveness that I have to the people around me. If one wanes, so does the other. If one is rich and beautiful, then so is the other. A couple of weeks ago, I, I told you that illustration about, about if somebody comes and borrows 20 bucks from you this morning, remember this? Somebody borrows $20 from you and you go home, they can't pay for their lunch, but you're glad to take care of it. But the next morning, you all of a sudden get a call from your lawyer 
You have a great aunt out there who's passed away and has left you millions and millions of dollars. You're independently wealthy. You can do whatever you want. And while you're dancing around your house rejoicing, you get a phone call from the guy from the day before who said, hey, look, I'm so sorry. Could you just give me a little more time to pay back that debt? In your mind, there's no way that you could look and say, yeah, could you rush right over? I'm in need of that. You'd look and be like, $20? Who needs $20? (laughs) In other words, you see what's happening is what's going on in the life of a person who lacks forgiveness is the failure to understand that equation. And I think there's two sides of it. Think of it, put it in this way. Go back to Matthew 18. What is it that would cause that servant to so impatiently go and grab his servant to demand repayment? I think there's two options. Option number one is the servant could just be a, a dismissive jerk. He might have heard that he owed a couple billion dollars, but it never registered with him. And so very flippantly, he just discards whatever it is that God said about him and goes back and chokes somebody for payment for his, for his particular debts. That's a, that's, that's a possible interpretation of this passage. In other words, what may be happening to me as I wrestle with God's forgiveness of me is I think at some certain point that it was kind of easy for him. I mean, I'm not perfect, but the truth of the matter is, is there's a whole lot of people worse than me. Jesus hates that comparison, by the way, because it always assumes that you're playing a comparison game with other people. We don't do that because we measure who we are by God's law and God's law only. But all of a sudden, when we diminish God's law, what we do is we come to church because we need a moral tune-up. You know, We came because we need the rough edges kind of shaved off a little bit, maybe here and there. Or maybe we got to do so because we got to get the kids you know, back in church because they're horrible. <laughs> we don't want them to forget that. So that's one option is he was, just, he was just forgetful of the size of his debt. But, you know, I think there's another way in which that text maybe leans even more. It might be that that servant is so desperate to pay off his, to, to, to go collect on his debts because he still thinks that he's having to pay the king back. You see the, see the point? In other words, you have someone who wasn't given forgiveness and then all of a sudden has it taken back. You have someone who was offered forgiveness and never took it because he goes out to choke his servant to pay a debt that had already been offered to be paid. So which is it for you? (laughs) I mean, honestly, I find myself switching back and forth in a day. There'll be days where I walk up and I'm just way too confident. I'm so dismissive of my need for grace. It's because I've started thinking highly of myself and probably diminished God's law somewhere along the way. Or there's times I walk around in another frame of mind, which is like, you know what? I think I've gotten to the end. I think he's done with me. After this last episode that I've been through, I think he's done with me. This is the reason why you see King David so rehearsing this idea of God's unfailing love, his unfailing love, his unfailing love, which is the love that never lets him go. Look, here's the point. The wellspring that Christians are intended to draw from in order to keep peace among us so that we can have good relationships with each other. Forgive us our debts, Lord, to the degree to which I forgive my debtors. (laughs) Which, by the way, will shake you up, won't it? You know, when when you hear Jesus saying, I am going to treat you before my Father the way you treated people around you. And you pray for it every week if you're here. (laughs) That's a little unnerving. Don't you ever want to get up the end of that and be like, okay, announcement everybody's forgiven 100%. Why? Because you instinctively know that you need that. I need that. 
Jesus comes to actually pay all of my debt. And what that does is it creates a small little island in the midst of a stream of a culture that has forgotten how to forgive. Either forgotten or we never had it. If you look at our national conversation between, between social media and news sources, there's no outlet for forgiveness. We could be one of the last spots where the world will hear anything about forgiveness. And so Jesus invites you into prayer for that. Massage it into your soul. Work it into your heart. Work the calculus. There's no hope for the good life without it, he says. Okay, so that's our, that's our prayer for needs. And secondly, our prayer for peace. But thirdly, the sixth petition is that there's a prayer for perseverance. What does this mean? Well, Jesus says, you know, uh, deliver us from evil. Uh, and what he means by there is that there actually is really a thing called evil. N.T. Wright, in a little uh, commentary on this passage, says that when you bring up the word evil, you'll typically get three reactions from the world around you. Reaction number one is from people that we might call deniers. They just don't think evil exists. People, people in general, they're basically good. And honestly, any of the badness that's in the world would totally be cured if we all practiced random acts of kindness to each other. Uh, you look at those people and you think, that feels a little naive, <laughs> given the existence of social media in our day and the way we interact with each other online. But secondly, he says, the other reaction to evil is what you call an overbeliever. An overbeliever in evil is the one who actually sees a demon behind every bush. You know, you give the devil almost way too much credit for every wayward thought. You know, the, re the reason I did not get that good parking space in Walmart is because the devil entered into that person who took it from me. Or we get super panicked about the fact that Nike has got a big ad campaign or a lawsuit against a company who's going to sell the devil's shoe. And there's a drop of blood in all of them. By the way, you do know that marketing companies do that on purpose to trigger evangelicals. We did their advertising for them in the midst of our panic about the devil's shoe. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're, you're in a better spot. But the point is that flatters the devil. That's an overbelieving point of the devil. Thirdly, Wright says there's then their condescender. The condescender is the person who thinks that, oh, yeah, there's evil all right, but it's out there in those people. And I'm not like one of those people. you got Luke 18, the story that Jesus tells about a, about a Pharisee who comes up to the front of the church. And it's funny because the text says, and he stood up and he prayed to himself. <laughs> That's not a mistake. He, didn't, he wasn't praying to God, he's praying to himself. And he says, oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men, the extortioners and the unjust and the adulterers. Yeah, there's evil out there. It's just somebody else's problem. So Jesus comes in to put evil to the fore in this prayer because he's basically saying, here's the balance. Evil is real and it is powerful and it starts in you. It starts in you and it starts in me. Whenever human beings give worship to something other than God, they are giving authority over to the forces of destruction and dehumanization. So real is this evil that it is personified in an actual creature that we know as the devil, a malevolent personality whose entire purpose of existence is to bring about the destruction of the God's design in every area of life. So what that means for us when we pray the, 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 the sixth petition is that we've all signed up for a fight. That's what it means. We are here on this earth in this short little period God gives us to hold the line for another hour, for one more day, one more year against the forces that would destroy people and, be, and dehumanize them as well. 
But the devil, y'all, is supremely anti-creation. He is anti-redemption. He is anti-grace. And God's good world can't get sucked down into his agenda for it. And that evil is felt into us personally as well. Every one of us is going to feel, if the Spirit is in you, a war that's going on in your heart that equally threatens to undo us. So we end our prayers with, lead me not into those temptations that would ultimately bring about my destruction. In other words, Lord, don't let my temptations become opportunities for me to, to harm myself and others. There's a story I heard one time about a professor who told his class that they weren't going to master the material in the class if they put off studying until the day before the test. So to remedy this, I'm not trying to give any professors any ideas here, so college students don't stone me after this sermon is over. But he said, I'm not going to tell you when the exams are. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> in other words, all of the exams are going to be pop major tests. That's how it's going to work. And so therefore, you've got to come to class every time, and you've got to keep up. And therefore, if you did keep up, the test would actually reveal some good things. It would affirm you. It would solidify your knowledge of what you've been studying. But if you're really spending this whole time trying to bluff the professor, then those things that would, would be good for someone else will become a trap for you. It'll be a trap. That's what a test does, by the way. The test that we wrestle with in terms of temptation is to sort of show me who I really am. And the way that I deal with those temptations shows me what's going on. And what Jesus is saying is, we ought always to be praying, God, please don't let my tests become traps. You deliver me from the evil in the tests of life. Lead me not into them, he's saying. Don't let me be devoured by them. So in closing, it's worth asking, like, how are we doing? <laughs> how am I doing with those tests in life? What are they showing me? Are they leading me to get hard? Are they leading me to sort of, sort of solidify on the inside so that I'm resistant to any repentance? Do I walk away from those things? Or am I allowing them to soften me and send me back to God with what we believe from last week is all he wants, which is our repentance, our humility? How do we deal with those dramatic tests in life? Look, I hope that you can see the symmetry in this kind of prayer life. We don't divide life into the spiritual activities over here and the secular activities over there. Rather, Jesus is giving us this framework for, for a beautiful Christian worldview, which says that once I know who I am before God, then every area of life is under his lordship. The old Dutch Calvinist uh, prime minister of the Netherlands, <clears throat> Abraham Kuyper, was the one who said, there is not one square inch where God has not looked at and proclaimed to say, mine, that is mine. And every Christian has this commission that comes straight out of the Lord's prayer to be that person who brings the Lordship of Christ to bear over every area of life. So the challenge of this is to look at this prayer as my own structure and to start to pray. And by the way, just our little excursus that we've taken, you'll suddenly realize that trying to pray in the style or in the structure of this prayer could take you quite some time because there's a lot to consider. There's richness there everywhere. So much so that it does us good to repeat it every week, does it not? It's food for thought. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to embrace it all? Father, every one of us has daily bread that we need right now. Some of us don't know where provision's coming from. 
We're looking for a new job. We're looking for new opportunities. We're looking for healing for our friends and family. Some of us, Father, are out of fellowship with one another. There's anger and bitterness and resentment that is trying to root ourselves in and make us lonely. Father, others of us are are overcome by evil. We're overcome by the evil that we see around us and it's begun to sort of root itself in our own hearts and it's made us bitter towards each other. So Father, we bow our heads to pray. Father, daily bread, forgive us our debts. Lead us not to temptation. Father, all those things, would you dig that deeply into our hearts so that we might with joy invite you to come and establish your kingdom here during this time. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.